0: you know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Hi, listeners. We've covered a wide range of well-known names on historical figures, from exceptional minds and influential artists to groundbreakers and feared criminals. No character from history is off-limits. But what happens when a historical figure goes missing? If you haven't had a chance to listen to the ParCast series Gone yet, you're missing out on some of history's greatest mysteries. The episode you're about to hear tells the story of disgraced Vice President Aaron Burr's daughter, Theodosia Burr Alston, who shockingly disappeared in 1812. If you enjoy this episode, I strongly urge you to head over to the Gone feed and subscribe today. There you'll find stories on the Ark of the Covenant, Jimmy Hoffa, Amelia Earhart, and more. And great news, in addition to new episodes of Gone every other Monday, you'll get a special mini-episode on Off Mondays, but only on Spotify. Check it out. At some point between
1: 1813 and 1815, A salvager named Joseph Tillett took a vacation with his new wife, Polly, to a cozy spot near Nags Head, North Carolina. One night, while he was taking a solitary stroll across the beach, Tillett came upon a shipwreck near the shores of the town of Kitty Hawk. This wasn't unusual for the time. The War of 1812 was raging up and down America's east coast. The waters were treacherous and infested with pirates and enemy ships. Shipwrecks were common.
2: Tillett wasn't one to let good scrap go to waste, and he decided to investigate the wreck. He didn't find any bodies or bloodstains that may have indicated the ship was hijacked, but he did find silk dresses and other fineries that could only belong to a wealthy woman.
1: What stood out most to Tillett was an intact portrait of a beautiful young woman. There was no label on the canvas to indicate who the subject was, But Tillett concluded, based on the dresses he found, that the woman in the painting must have owned the items he discovered. She had been a passenger on the ship before she met some mysterious fate. Tillett took the painting and hung it up in his own home.
2: Years after Tillett's death, a doctor and his daughter would come across the portrait in his wife's home after treating her for an unspecified ailment. Over the course of a century, scholars and historians would try to identify the woman in the picture, which came to be known as the Nags Head Portrait. Though the subject's identity has never been confirmed, it has long been suspected that she is Theodosia Burr-Alston, the daughter of Vice President Aaron Burr.
1: Theodosia lived a historically significant life due to her infamous father, but she is best known for this... In late 1812, Theodosia boarded a ship bound for New York. She and the rest of the crew were never seen again.
2: Hi, I'm Molly.
1: And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone, a Parcast Original.
2: Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts.
1: If it's gone, we're looking for it.
2: At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com merch for more information.
2: You can find all previous episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts.
1: Today we'll be looking into Theodosia Burr-Alston, a socialite and daughter of Aaron Burr, the third vice president of the United States. On New Year's Eve, 1812, she boarded the transport ship The Patriot to travel from Charleston, South Carolina, to New York, and was never seen again.
2: When Theodosia Burr first vanished in 1813, her father, Aaron Burr, and the rest of the world generally assumed that, for some reason or another, she must have perished when the ship she was traveling on sank.
1: But in the decades after her disappearance, a number of strange coincidences and mysterious figures would turn up that seemed to indicate there was more to the story. Did Theodosia
2: Burr-Alston die when her ship sank due to a raging storm, or was there a more sinister force at work? Could it even be possible that she survived her fateful journey?
1: In this episode, we'll discuss three theories as to what became of the Patriot and Theodosia.
2: Our first theory is that Theodosia was the female stranger, a mysterious, unidentified woman who died in Virginia under odd circumstances four years after Theodosia disappeared.
1: Our second theory concerns the Nags Head portrait, which has long been suspected of featuring Theodosia as its subject. The portrait was found on a shipwreck in Nags Head, North Carolina, and may suggest that the Patriot was overtaken by a storm.
2: Finally, the third and most popular theory is that the Patriot was captured by pirates. We'll explore numerous conflicting reports from supposed members of pirate crews and we'll weigh the likelihood that Theodosia was forced to walk the plank.
1: Theodosia's whole existence was brought about through scandal. When her mother, also named Theodosia, and her father first began their courtship, It caused controversy across both sides of the Revolutionary War.
2: Aaron and the elder Theodosia met and fell in love in the early 1780s. At that time, Theodosia, then known as Theodosia Bartow Provost, was married to Jacques Marquez Provost, an officer in the British
1: Army. Aaron and Theodosia shared a love of philosophy and debate and wrote frequent letters to one another in which they challenged each other intellectually. A recurring topic of their debates was the morality of adultery, which naturally was relevant to their situation.
2: There's no evidence that they ever acted on their attraction until after Theodosia's first husband died in 1781. However, only half a year after his death... Aaron Burr and Theodosia Bartow Provost were married on July 6, 1782.
1: Although they never had a physical affair, their marriage was still a subject of gossip and disapproval. Theodosia was ten years older than Burr, already had numerous children, was not wealthy, and wasn't considered particularly attractive. In contrast, Burr was rich, educated, and a war hero who seemed to have a prosperous career ahead of him. The patriarchal society of the time couldn't fathom what a woman like Theodosia had to offer Burr.
2: But Burr was unlike most men of that time. Centuries before the modern feminist movement, Aaron Burr was actually an early proponent of women's rights. His views were largely shaped by the book A Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Mary Wollstonecraft. This book built on the growing dialogue of the revolutionary era and argued that women, like men, had a right to basic human rights. Burr found Wollstonecraft's arguments persuasive and would live his life advocating for gender equality.
1: As such, Burr and Theodosia formed a marriage based on love and mutual respect.
2: Aaron and Theodosia had four children, but two were stillborn and another died at the age of three. Their only surviving child, the younger Theodosia Burr, was born on June 21, 1783. She had five half-siblings from her mother's previous marriage.
1: Burr doted on his daughter and strived to provide her with the best schooling available. In those days, it was common for young boys to receive a classical education, while young girls were encouraged to focus on more feminine pursuits like music and poetry. But Burr ensured that Theodosia received the same instruction and tutoring her half-brothers did. In doing so, he prepared her for the public and sometimes difficult life of being his daughter. After the Revolutionary War, Burr served in New York State Assembly for a number of years before transitioning to national politics when he was elected to the United States Senate in 1791.
2: Burr's new political duties required him to be away from home frequently, but he didn't allow physical distance to prevent him from maintaining a close relationship with his daughter.
1: Burr and eight-year-old Theodosia wrote to each other frequently. He continued to encourage Theodosia to pursue her education, even though he wasn't around much to preside over her schooling.
2: Still, by the time Theodosia was 10 years old, she'd already learned French and Latin and had read several classic works of literature. As a girl, she was not allowed to attend school, but she was educated by the best tutors Burr could hire. Theodosia took naturally to her lessons and was possibly the first woman in American history to receive the equivalent of a college education.
1: Theodosia's success in education only served to confirm Burr's theory that women were intellectually equal to men. In a 1793 letter to his wife, Burr wrote of Theodosia, quote, But I hope yet by her to convince the world what neither sex appear to believe, that women have souls.
2: Yes, that was considered a progressive attitude in the late 18th century.
1: Around this time, tragedy struck the Burr family. Theodosia's mother grew ill from stomach cancer. Her doctors were unable to successfully treat her, and she died on May 18, 1794. Though they had always been close, Theodosia and her father's relationship became much stronger after her mother's death. They shared a strong bond as Theodosia grew into adulthood.
2: In addition to her intelligence and wit, Theodosia was considered a great beauty in her day. By the time she was 17, she was educated and had her share of suitors. None caught her attention quite so much as Joseph Alston, a southern plantation owner.
1: At that same time, Burr's political career was taking him to new heights. After a failed presidential bid in 1796, Burr had returned to his law practice. In 1800, Burr, along with Alexander Hamilton, represented Levi Weeks in the first ever murder trial in American history reported via recorded transcript.
2: Burr and Hamilton's efforts led to Weeks' acquittal and made both men nationally famous. Burr utilized this momentum to make another run for the presidency in 1800.
1: Elections at the time were different than they are today. Instead of putting forth a presidential and vice presidential candidate, each party would run two candidates. Whoever received the most votes would be elected president, and whoever received the second highest number of votes became vice president.
2: Burr was the less favored Democratic-Republican presidential candidate, running alongside and against his fellow Democratic-Republican, Thomas Jefferson. He hoped to finish the presidential campaign in second place, where he could serve as Jefferson's vice president.
1: Theodosia assisted with the campaigning, hosting numerous parties and awareness movements to rally votes for her father. The politicians she encountered during this campaign were charmed by how intelligent and well-educated Theodosia proved to be. A visiting friend of Burr's, John Davis, described Theodosia as, quote, Elegant without ostentation and learned without pedantry. End quote. The mayor of New York, Edward Livingston, once joked that Theodosia had such a natural spark, she could ignite a warship.
2: Theodosia wasn't able to focus her full attention on the campaigning, however. She was distracted by her courtship with Alston, which grew more serious and passionate, despite Theodosia's belief that she was still too young to marry.
1: On December 3, 1800, the Electoral College cast its votes for president and, shockingly, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr tied. For the next three months, Congress held numerous runoff elections, but 35 ballots failed to give either candidate the majority necessary to win the presidency.
2: Finally, Jefferson was able to strike a deal with one of Burr's supporters, Delaware's congressman James Bayard. Jefferson convinced Bayard to abstain from voting in exchange for Jefferson adopting policies favorable to Bayard. The ploy worked, and on February 17, 1801, Congress elected Thomas Jefferson as the third president of the United States. Aaron Burr took the vice presidency.
1: That same month, in February 1801, Theodosia and Joseph Alston were married. While Theodosia was eager to begin her new life as a married woman, she also wanted to show her support of her father's political career. The couple cut their honeymoon short, and on March 4, 1801, they traveled to Washington, D.C., to see Aaron Burr take the oath of office for the vice presidency.
2: During the presidential election and the early years of his vice presidency, Aaron Burr continued to clash with Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton over a number of personal, political, and ideological differences. Their feud deepened throughout Burr's political career.
1: While Burr served as vice president, Theodosia gave birth to her first and only child, Aaron Burr Alston, on May 29, 1802.
2: Theodosia's labor was difficult, and she suffered a prolapsed uterus. She survived, but would spend the rest of her life struggling with repeated bouts of illness and ongoing pain. She was also unable to have another child.
1: Burr continued to split his attention between his political duties and his daughter and new grandson. Meanwhile, his rivalry with Hamilton grew worse by the day.
2: Hamilton and Burr engaged in a series of increasingly combative correspondences, while Hamilton also wrote publicly about his distrust of Burr and his strong belief that Burr was not the kind of man who should be trusted with public office. Worse, Hamilton allegedly went so far as to imply that Burr and Theodosia had some kind of inappropriate relationship. He didn't outright say the word incestuous, but the implication was there.
1: When Burr learned of these salacious comments, he demanded Hamilton apologize. Hamilton refused and the correspondence between the two men grew increasingly combative.
2: Soon, Burr felt there was only one avenue available to him to preserve his honor and that of his daughter. In late June 1804, he challenged Hamilton to a duel. The deadly outcome would change Burr's life and Theodosia's forever.
1: Coming up, we'll discuss the fallout of the Burr-Hamilton duel, Theodosia Burr-Alston's mysterious disappearance, and a few theories about her fate.
0: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime.
2: The feud between Vice President Aaron Burr and his rival, Alexander Hamilton, hit a breaking point when Hamilton implied in his writing that Burr had an inappropriate relationship with his daughter, Theodosia. In response, Burr challenged Hamilton to a duel.
1: At 7 a.m. on July 11, 1804, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton met in a field near Weehawken, New Jersey, Although New Jersey was one of the many states that outlawed dueling, the field was a common location for such matters. Dueling was a
2: controversial practice at this time. It was more common in the South, but Northerners often participated as well. It wasn't unheard of for a man to decline a duel, but even when one did occur, there was ample opportunity for the participants to avoid fatalities.
1: Often one or both dueling participants would fire into the air in order to fulfill the technical requirements of the duel without injuring the other party. On other occasions, duelers would fight until first blood was drawn, allowing participants to end the duel with a minor injury rather than death. Burr and Hamilton's duel would not end so amicably.
2: Burr shot Hamilton in the stomach and the bullet lodged near Hamilton's spine.
1: Hamilton died from his wounds the next day, and word soon spread that the vice president of all people had committed murder.
2: Theodosia didn't know about the duel until she heard that Hamilton was dead. Still, her first reaction was to jump to her father's defense, even as the rest of the country seemed to turn on him.
1: Burr was charged with murder in both New York and New Jersey and couldn't return to his home in New York without risking arrest.
2: So long as Burr continued to serve as vice president, he enjoyed immunity from the charges. However, he suffered public disapproval and feared the fallout from his duel with Hamilton would only grow worse with time.
1: About a month after Hamilton's death in August of 1804, Burr relocated to South Carolina, where he stayed with Theodosia while continuing to carry out his duties as vice president. The southern states were more accepting of dueling culture, and Burr's reputation was less weakened there than it was in the north. For a brief
2: time, Theodosia, her husband Joseph Alston, their child, and Burr lived an idyllic life together. Burr doted on his grandson and daughter and sent numerous correspondences, seeking to clear his name and reinstate his reputation.
1: He encountered another difficulty during this period, however. Though Burr came from wealth and had amassed a fortune of his own, he had never been great with money.
2: His many years of working to provide Theodosia with the best life had to offer, as well as his own weakness for the finer things, had left him in considerable debt. And now that his reputation was in the gutter, his creditors were beginning to hound him.
1: It was only a matter of time before Burr would have to move on. Burr's term as vice president ended in 1805. Naturally, he decided not to run for another public office, as he doubted anyone would vote for him. But he was still ambitious and eager to rebuild his reputation. So that same year, Burr headed west to the Unsettled Territories.
2: It's unclear if he had a solid plan when he first set out, but Burr soon became embroiled in a plot to steal territory from the United States. Two years prior, in 1803, the American government had purchased a massive piece of land in the Louisiana Purchase. This territory had not yet been broken up into ratified states, but the process was underway by 1805.
1: At that same time, the stirrings of revolution had begun in Mexico. Mexico was still a Spanish colony, but was now demanding liberty in a move that threatened to draw the United States into an international conflict with Spain.
2: It seems that Burr could turn this turmoil to his advantage and lead the Louisiana Territory to secede from America, with himself as its new president. In the fall of 1806, Burr assembled a militia in New Orleans, attempting to either stage a rebellion or march on the Mexican border.
1: He conspired with his friend, Governor James Wilkinson, who oversaw a part of the Louisiana Territory. What Burr didn't realize was that Wilkinson was less trustworthy than he seemed. A double agent selling American secrets to the Spanish, Wilkinson was opportunistic and cautious of his own secrets.
2: Burr seemed almost delusional during this period. In his letters to Theodosia during the time, Burr spoke of his intention to become an emperor and said that Theodosia would inherit his crown one day and rule as Empress of Louisiana. His plans never came to fruition, in part because Wilkinson betrayed Burr's confidence and reported Burr's plots to the U.S. government.
1: Wilkinson had probably determined the likely scenario that Burr's rebellion would not succeed, and he cooperated with the U.S. in order to ensure he would be under less scrutiny in the coming trial.
2: In 1807, Aaron Burr was labeled a traitor by the federal government. He fled to Spanish Florida, but was arrested en route and formally charged with treason.
1: It's unclear how much Theodosia supported her father's plot or what her thoughts were on her potential future as an empress. Regardless, she continued to act as a passionate advocate on her father's behalf, even after his arrest. She and her father maintained their correspondence throughout Burr's imprisonment and trial.
2: On August 3, 1807, Aaron Burr stood trial for treason in Richmond, Virginia. At that time, it was very difficult to prove a treason charge in a court of law, and Burr was eventually acquitted.
1: Although he still had outstanding murder charges from his duel with Alexander Hamilton, the treason case had overshadowed the earlier scandal. Burr never stood trial for that earlier crime. Although Burr
2: escaped consequences for the murder and his attempted conquest of U.S. territory, he couldn't escape his debts. During Burr's period of legal troubles, Theodosia had tactfully managed her father's dwindling finances and helped hold off the creditors. But by 1808, Burr couldn't hold them off any longer.
1: After winning his case, Burr left the United States and relocated to Europe fleeing his creditors and his political troubles.
2: Burr chose this self-imposed exile, but Theodosia continued to be publicly vocal about how the leaders of the United States had wronged her father. She began a letter-writing campaign on her father's behalf, begging her contacts to welcome Burr back to the country and assist him with travel expenses.
1: Theodosia even wrote a letter to the First Lady, Dolly Madison, on June 24, 1809. In the letter, she wrote, Why then is my father banished from a country for which he has encountered wounds and dangers and fatigue for years? Why has he driven from his friends, from an only child, to pass an unlimited time in exile? Two years
2: later, Theodosia wrote an appeal to the Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin. Her letter, dated March 9, 1811, read, Quote, recollect that I have seen my father dashed from the high rank he held in the minds of his countrymen, imprisoned and forced into exile. Must he ever remain thus excommunicated and singled out as a mark for the shafts of calumny? End quote. She managed to raise some money,
1: which she sent to her father overseas. Burr was eventually able to return to the United States in 1812, just before the War of 1812 broke out. He lived near Boston for a few months before returning to his home in New York in June of that year. For a time, he lived as Aaron Edwards, which was his mother's maiden name, so as to avoid his creditors. He also urged Theodosia to visit him in New York. Theodosia was busy, though.
2: That same year, her husband, Joseph, won his election for governor of South Carolina, He moved into the governor's mansion, while Theodosia remained behind to manage the family plantation.
1: Unfortunately, the victory was soon undercut by tragedy. In 1812, Joseph and Theodosia's 10-year-old son, Aaron Burr Alston, contracted malaria. Theodosia called for the best medical treatment, but there was nothing to be done.
2: On June 30, 1812, Aaron Burr Alston died. Theodosia was stricken by grief, and her husband was too caught up in the duties of his governorship to be of much use to her.
1: The shock of the loss gravely impacted Theodosia's health. She yearned to travel to New York to be with her father, but had to wait several months before she was strong enough. Even then, her husband couldn't go with her. It would be bad form for a new governor to leave the state so soon after an election— Although it was rare in those days for women to travel alone, Theodosia once again demonstrated how liberated she was when she decided to go to New York on her own.
2: Travel by sea was dangerous at that time due to the ongoing war. When the conflict initially broke out between the United States and Great Britain in 1812, the U.S. had a small navy with approximately 16 ships— Since the United States didn't have the time or the resources to build a naval fleet, they licensed several privateers to harass British ships.
1: Privateering was legal and sanctioned by the government in 1812. Licensed privateers were legally permitted to seize British ships and keep whatever valuables they found as payment for their services.
2: The goal behind privateering was for private merchants to assist the U.S. war effort by making the waters around the United States unsafe for British ships. As the war went on, conventional transports became rare, and travelers had to turn to privateer ships if they wanted to journey by sea. Theodosia booked passage on the Patriot, which had formerly been a privateer ship.
1: The route from South Carolina to New York typically took five or six days. The passage was risky as the waters were crowded with pirates and warships. In particular, ships often ran aground on the shores near Nags Head and Kitty Hawk. The water there is shallow and rocky, and captains sometimes crashed there. Pirates were also a risk, as they often took advantage of the poor sailing
2: conditions. They'd attach lanterns to horses and walk up and down the coast at night. When ships saw the light, they'd steer toward it, believing they were following another ship through treacherous waters. Once the ship ran aground, pirates would seize whatever valuables they found on the wreck.
1: There was also the matter of the British blockade, which the Patriot would have to pass through on its route to New York. Though Aaron Burr was now a disgraced former statesman, the British may still have seen Theodosia as a potentially valuable prisoner if they stopped the ship.
2: All in all, this was a very risky time to be traveling by sea. But Theodosia, determined as ever, wanted to see her father and would brave the journey no matter the danger.
1: Her husband did his part to make the journey somewhat safer. Joseph was able to secure a diplomatic letter which would give the Patriots safe passage through the British blockade.
2: Aaron Burr was also concerned about the trip and the toll it might take on Theodosia. He wrote to a friend, Dr. Timothy Green, and asked him to accompany her on the journey. Green and Theodosia boarded the ship on December 31,
1: 1812. Two days later, on January 2, 1813, a British ship stopped the Patriot at their blockade. Once the British read the permission letter and confirmed the identity of those on board the Patriot, they allowed the ship to continue on its way. This was the last reported sighting of the Patriot and its passenger, the Edocia Burr Alston.
2: The same night, a storm began to rage outside of Kitty Hawk and Nags Head. The British ships stationed there scattered, driven apart by violent waves.
1: On January 5th, 1813, Aaron Burr went to the New York docks to wait for the Patriot to arrive. For the entire day, he waited and waited, and waited. He came back the next day and waited some more. The ship did not appear. Soon, Burr was forced to acknowledge the clear truth. The Patriot had been lost at sea, and all on board had died.
2: In the years, decades, and centuries after she went missing, theories would still abound as to what really happened to Theodosia Burr Alston.
1: We'll discuss these theories and determine what we think most likely happened after this.
2: Now, back to the story. In early January of 1813, the Patriot, a privateer ship-turned-transport vessel, vanished somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean between South Carolina and New York. Among the missing passengers was Theodosia Burr Alston, daughter of disgraced former Vice President Aaron Burr.
1: In the months that followed the disappearance, a massive search ensued, but no shred of evidence existed to reveal what had become of the Patriot. Burr continued to return to the docks every day, even as it became increasingly unlikely that the Patriot would appear and deliver Theodosia back to him. To this day, no one can be sure of what became of the Patriot, Theodosia Burr-Alston, or the other people on board.
2: Our first theory involves the intriguing events of October 1816, nearly four years after Theodosia disappeared. An unnamed man and woman disembarked from a ship in Alexandria, Virginia, and arranged for a hotel room at the city hotel. They refused to tell anyone their names, although they did introduce themselves as husband and wife. The woman was gravely ill, and the man called for a doctor.
1: A doctor soon arrived at the hotel to treat the woman. Despite his best efforts, the woman succumbed to her illness on October 14, 1816. She was buried in Alexandria with a gravestone that listed her only as the female stranger.
2: Some have speculated that the female stranger and her male companion were Theodosia Burr alston and Dr. Green. The female stranger's mysterious illness could have been tied to Theodosia's ongoing health issues that had plagued her ever since her son's birth in 1802.
1: However, this theory doesn't account for the four years that passed between Theodosia's disappearance and the female stranger's arrival in Virginia. Presumably, Dr. Green and Theodosia faked their deaths and were secretly living together as husband and wife until Theodosia's death. There are no good theories as to why they would do such a thing.
2: Additionally, there's no reason why Dr. Green, an experienced doctor, would need to call another doctor to treat an injured or sick Theodosia. If she really were Theodosia Burr-Alston, surely Dr. Green could have treated her on his own.
1: Most damning about this theory, however, is the fact that the story of the female stranger is entirely impossible to verify. While the female stranger's grave exists, the earliest story of the sick woman and her male companion didn't appear in print until 50 years later, when a local newspaper published an article explaining how the grave of the female stranger came to be.
2: Soon, other newspapers and magazines expanded upon the story of the female stranger. It was around this time that people first began speculating that the female stranger was Theodosia Burr-Alston, a theory that remains popular today.
1: There are no hotel records to support the idea that an unnamed man and woman checked into the city hotel or called a doctor on that date. Additionally, the female stranger's grave states that she was 23 years old. But if Theodosia Burr-Alston had been alive in October 1816... She would have been 33 years old.
2: We'll probably never know the identity of the female stranger or what led her to die alone and unnamed in Alexandria, Virginia. One thing we can say with confidence, however, is that she probably wasn't Theodosia Burr Alston.
1: This naturally raises the question, given all these discrepancies, how did Theodosia Burr ever get linked to the mystery of the female stranger in the first place?
2: it's actually unclear. We could surmise that the mysterious circumstances of the female stranger's arrival in Virginia and her sudden demise led people to look at known missing persons to try to explain the mystery. Maybe it was just a slow news day.
1: One of the prevailing factors in all of these theories is how they tended to be propagated by news media without much diligence done in terms of actually confirming the facts. As such... A
2: lot of the assumptions about what happened at Theodosia are more rooted in rumor than fact.
1: Our second theory is that the Patriot crashed on the shores of Nags Head, North Carolina. The key to this theory is a shipwreck discovered there by Joseph Tillett shortly after Theodosia's disappearance. The exact year of the discovery isn't clear, but it was likely some point in 1813, In addition to women's silks and other personal items, Tillett found an untitled painting that would come to be known as the Nags Head Portrait.
2: Tillett gifted the portrait to his wife, and the couple displayed it in their home for decades afterward, though they never mentioned to anyone how they had come across it. Because they didn't lead anyone back to the wreck, no investigation followed their discovery. The wreck has been lost to time.
1: Decades later, in 1869, Dr. William Poole was vacationing near Nags Head when he was summoned to the Tillett home for a medical emergency. Joseph Tillett was dead by this point, but his wife, Polly, was still alive. When the doctor saw the portrait, he became intrigued, especially when Polly told him how her husband had come across it. He ended up accepting the portrait as payment for his services. Poole was a fan of history,
2: and he was familiar with the story of Theodosia's disappearance. He knew that the date and location that Tillett found the portrait were consistent with the last known location of the Patriot. Based on these facts, Poole concluded that the Nags Head portrait may be a clue regarding Theodosia's
1: fate. In the years following... Dr. Poole contacted any of Theodosia's surviving friends and relatives he could find to determine if any of them thought the woman in the Nags Head painting might be Theodosia. He received wildly differing answers. Theodosia's husband, Joseph Alston, had already passed away by 1869, but his younger sister said she recognized Theodosia in the portrait's eyes. Others insisted that the painting could not be of Theodosia.
2: Some have speculated that Theodosia might have issued a painting of herself, which she brought on board the Patriot to give as a gift to her father. When the Patriot wrecked, the painting remained behind as the last trace of Theodosia Burr Alston.
1: There is no record that Theodosia actually traveled with the painting, but that hasn't prevented many from speculating that the Nags Head portrait must have belonged to her.
2: Poole's obsession is the main reason that the Nags Head portrait is often linked to Theodosia. This would in turn lead to the conclusion that the wreckage the Tillet found was the Patriot.
1: This theory raises several questions, including what caused the ship to wreck and what happened to Theodosia during and after the crash. If the Nags Head portrait truly is Theodosia Burr-Alston, we can conclude that the ship was not sunk in a naval battle at sea, nor did it fall victim to pirates, since the portrait and other valuables were still on board when it found it, and pirates would likely have seized the wealth. Rather, the ship was the victim of the rough storms that were reported on the coast during the period when the Patriot would have been traveling north to New York. Of course, there's always the possibility that whatever misfortune befell the Patriot came from men rather than nature.
2: Our third theory is that the Patriot was attacked by pirates and that Theodosia perished during or shortly after the capture. This theory includes several uncertain details due to the conflicting and contradictory evidence that has come forward regarding pirate attacks against the Patriot.
1: On May 23, 1833, a newspaper story ran in Mobile, Alabama, that covered a man who claimed to be the pirate who forced Theodosia to walk the plank. The doctor who heard this man's confession refused to identify him out of a desire to respect his privacy and that of his surviving family.
2: Without more information about the man who made the confession or the doctor who reported the story to the news, we can't assess how likely it is that this story is true. However, that story's veracity would be called into question in light of later, conflicting confessions that would be
1: reported. December 31, 1874, 62 years to the day that Theodosia boarded the Patriot, the Galveston Daily News published a story in which a man named Jean-Baptiste Calistre claimed that he was a crewman on the pirate ship Vengeance. According to Callistre, the captain of the Vengeance captured the Patriot and took Theodosia prisoner. But she died during their journey to Galveston Bay, Texas.
2: Another contradictory account of Theodosia's death at the hands of pirates was published by a local newspaper in Battle Creek, Michigan on February 14, 1880. This story covered a recent deathbed confession from a man named Benjamin F. Burdick, who claimed he'd murdered Theodosia.
1: According to Burdick, he'd lived as a pirate, and his crew had captured the Patriot during its journey. They planned to execute everyone on board, but all of the pirates were reluctant to kill the beautiful, kind Theodosia. Eventually, they cast lots, and Burdick was the unfortunate man tasked with murdering Theodosia Burr-Alston.
2: Burdick set up a plank on deck. Theodosia didn't protest her fate, but did ask for time to prepare herself for death. She was permitted to change into a white gown and fetch a Bible from her room. Strong and fearless, she stepped off the plank without a word and sank into the ocean.
1: The story that ran in Battle Creek didn't say whether anyone had attempted to verify the confession.
2: Yet another variation on this story, once more from the Galveston Daily News, published on April 30, 1886, features a man identifying himself as W.J.J. He claimed he'd heard a deathbed confession from a pirate who'd captured the Patriot and witnessed Theodosia's
1: execution
2: by walking the plank.
1: About 20 years later, on August 5, 1902, the Chicago Tribune ran a story similar to the one originally published in the Galveston Daily News. According to this newspaper article, a woman named Mrs. Kezia McComer was the woman who cared for Benjamin Burdick in his old age, and she heard his confession. In this version of the story, Theodosia was given a choice to become
2: the pirate captain's mistress or be killed. Theodosia chose death, but after she put on her white dress and fetched her Bible, she prayed out loud on the ship's deck, swore that God would curse the pirates for their murderous ways, then leaped from the plank.
1: Macomber believed that Burdick had never told anyone else his story, and she may have been unaware of the earlier news story on Burdick. After the elderly pirate told his story to Macomber, She kept his secret until she was 83 years old. Then, as she neared the end of her life, she relayed the story to a Michigan notary public named Freeman Atwell. The two Benjamin Burdick stories
2: are incompatible with many of the details we know about Theodosia's life. She was never religious, so her prayers, divine curses, and insistence on dying with a Bible in her hands seem uncharacteristic.
1: Additionally, real pirates rarely forced prisoners to walk the plank. The trope was an invention of the literature of the time and first appeared in the 1724 novel A General History of the Pirates by Daniel Defoe. If Theodosia Burr-Alston had been murdered by pirates, she almost certainly would have been killed some other way.
2: Finally... The Burdick Confessions describe the seas as calm, but the route the Patriot followed was hit by a severe storm that raged January 2nd, when the Patriot was last seen, and the next day, January 3rd.
1: Most damning of all, however, is how similar each of these stories are to a novel published by Charles Guayere in 1872, titled Fernando de Lemos, Truth and Fiction. One chapter of this novel told a fictional account of how Theodosia was captured by the famous pirate Captain Dominique Yu. Much like
2: Burdick's testimony a decade later, the novel describes how after Yu captured the Patriot, the crew killed all the men on board. Then Yu ordered Theodosia to walk the plank, which she did without protest.
1: In the novel... Yu confesses to his crimes against Theodosia on his deathbed, detailing his life of crime and murder to the doctor who attended him.
2: Given the similarities between these numerous newspaper confessions and the fictional novel, we're skeptical of all these claims.
1: It seems quite likely that the letter from the man who called himself Calistre was a hoax capitalizing on the attention being paid to Theodosia's disappearance and to pirate abductions at the time.
2: As for Benjamin Burdick's two different confessions, it seems likely that either Burdick, McComer, or the journalists who reported on the later confessions livened up an ordinary man's death by plagiarizing GRA in the press.
1: Clearly, these stories can't all be true. If one or more of these stories were accurate, it would suggest that various members of the same pirate crew all gave nearly identical-sounding deathbed confessions. Instead, we believe most of the self-proclaimed pirates must have been lying.
2: It's interesting that the mystery and conspiracy of Theodosia's disappearance have persevered as long as it
1: has. In these cases, loved ones close to the missing people usually work to continue the search, spreading awareness, and praying that they may one day be reunited.
2: But this was not the case for Aaron Burr.
1: Until his death in 1836... Burr maintained that Theodosia had most certainly died in a shipwreck. He spoke of her disappearance saying, quote, She is dead. She perished in the miserable little pilot boat in which she left. Were she alive, all the prisons in the world could not keep her from her father.
2: Of all the theories, we have to conclude that Burr's assumption seems the most likely. The Patriot passed through dangerous waters during stormy weather, and an accident in those conditions would have been quite likely. And if, as many believe, the Nags Head portrait was Theodosia's, it's unlikely that pirates would have left the valuables behind on the wreck. The evidence that the Patriot sunk off of Nags Head in stormy weather
1: is just too compelling. Given how clear this solution appears, It may seem strange that Theodosia's disappearance is considered so mysterious to this day, but people love stories, and the romanticism of a pirate attack or a fake death are just too irresistible.
2: Given how famous Theodosia was, and how poor fact-checking allowed unverified accounts to be repeated in numerous newspapers, the loss of the patriot has taken on an almost legendary status. After a life in the spotlight marked by scandal, it seems that even in death, Theodosia Brewer-Alston has been unable to escape rumor, speculation, and the whims of public opinion.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode
2: You can find all previous episodes of Gone, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to
1: podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us
2: on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
1: Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. Gone is written by Angela Jorgensen, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.
0: Remember, in addition to new episodes of Gone every other Monday, you'll get a special mini-episode on Off Mondays, but only on Spotify. Thanks for listening.